Welcome to the Chemo Files. I'm Debbie Gallant. I'm not much of a Halloween fan, but I knew this year, with a cue ball head delivered courtesy of Chemo, I'd do something. I don't know, it just seemed right. When life provides such a perfect setup, it's your job to deliver the punchline. Okay. How's he doing? Does it look good? It's a little sloppy. <laughs> so here we are on the morning of Halloween, and there's a block party outside. Noah and I are sitting at the kitchen table, turning my head into a phrenologist's model. You know, that 19th century schematic where a person's psychological attributes are mapped to specific places on their brain, sections of the brain with labels like Firmness, morality, revenge, uh, <laughs> revenge fantasies. We're having a blast. Even if I don't feel well, it is two days after my last chemo. It's fun letting Noah loose with an eyeliner pencil and his interpretation of my psyche. Concern about environment. It's tiny. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to write that. Waiting to get in the next joke. Something about like, um, will you comebacks, stop? Unused comebacks. <laughs> That's good. But part of me, the part that's lived in the suburbs the past 26 years, wonders whether my bald head, exhibited at a block party, somehow violates a social norm, even on Halloween. Would young mothers feel like I'd gone too far? The idea of a mom having cancer, possibly dying, that kind of scary. Maybe that lay outside the social contract for the holiday. As it turned out, I was practically invisible at the block party. A few children glanced over, a bit perplexed, and only one person actually struck up a conversation. A new neighbor right across the street who launched into a story about her sister, who died of breast cancer after a five-year fight. And so the trick was played on me, because that's exactly what I didn't want to hear. Halloween, it comes and goes, but fear remains long after the front yard cemeteries get put back in the attic. And around this time, I found myself wandering around the world headquarters of fear, the vast cancer section of the Internet, because in mid-October, the American Cancer Society announced changes to its recommendations on mammograms. Screenings should start later, they said, at 45 rather than 40, and for women over 55, every other year instead of every year. Yeah, you heard that right. Fewer mammograms, and that's from the American Cancer Society. During a month where you can't watch a football game without seeing a player wearing pink cleats, with the message everywhere, early detection saves lives. Wait, I have breast cancer. It came up on a routine mammogram. I hadn't felt anything, and neither did my doctors. And I was told it was an aggressive form of breast cancer, triple negative. So wasn't I, in fact, a poster child for early detection? If this was no longer true, wasn't the science underlying my whole treatment crumbling beneath me? When I heard the news, I ventured back to that shadowy place I'd learned to stay away from when I first got my diagnosis, the Internet. And then, as long as I was going somewhere scary, I decided to double down. This week on The Chemophiles, the science, the conflict, the cognitive dissonance behind the American Cancer Society's very surprising pronouncement. The studies on which the new guidelines are based 
They don't just recommend that women start screening at 45 instead of 40. Most of them suggest something much more drastic, that the benefits of cancer screening have been entirely overstated. That, through a certain statistical lens, you could argue that mammography might be responsible for more deaths than lives saved. And this has nothing to do with the possible radiation effects from the mammogram itself. Okay, are you confused yet? I was, because I'm pretty sure it contradicts everything we've been taught to believe about breast cancer, that the disease was becoming more manageable because of early detection, that awareness was key, that going in for the yearly mammogram could save your life. This story intrigued me because it involves very smart people, experts, contradicting each other. There's just no way around that. While the doctors continue to treat mom for a screen-detected cancer, some of the researchers are suggesting she had no business getting screened in the first place. So we put it to Dr. Scapatulo, mom's oncologist. Under the revised guidelines, mom would have waited two years between mammograms instead of one. So we ask him, where would this case be if she had waited another year to get screened? Well, it's quite possible that uh, waiting a year, an extra year between mammograms, it would not have been detected, and the, at least the size of the tumor would have been larger. So it's possible that it may have been, the stage of your disease would have been higher. Dr. Scapatulo sticks to his guns. Yes, he admits. Screening might not save as many lives as the public imagines. But it saves lives. One explanation he offers for the new guidelines? Cost-cutting. Meanwhile... Mom and I are on the internet reading lots of papers by a guy named Dr. Michael Baum. Baum is one of the foremost voices for the other side, the camp that says screening kills more people than it saves. As it happens, we have a connection to Baum. He's the father-in-law of Bernadette Baum, an old colleague and friend of Mom's. Previously, Mom had been afraid to go near his work. Bernadette had mentioned her father-in-law's point of view months ago, but we never followed up. And for good reason. They tell you to stay away from the internet when you get cancer. Whatever it is you're worried about, you're going to find it. But when the Cancer Society came out with the guidelines, we decided to go looking for trouble. We didn't just pour over his papers. Through Bernadette, we actually managed to get an interview with Dr. Baum from his home in London. The first thing I want to say is almost a, a disclaimer because I've been accused of lots of things in the past, but I've devoted my whole career to women's health um, and we have a bad family history of breast cancer. Dr. Baum's perspective on screening mammography is unique because of all of the different hats he's worn over the years. As a surgical oncologist, he's treated many women for breast cancer, but in addition to that, he also served on the UK National Screening Committee. In the late 80s, he set up one of the earliest hubs for universal breast screening. So that's something to keep in mind with everything Dr. Baum says about the ills of mammography. He himself was instrumental in getting millions of women in his country to get mammograms. But, like the scientist who creates the monster... After about seven or eight years, I had misgivings. Reports were coming in suggesting the uh, level... Um, of benefit had been exaggerated and the uh, level of harm virtually ignored. The studies Dr. Baum is talking about are not fringe studies. As early as the 90s, they start coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine and other reputable publications. And what they find? 
is concerning. In the age of universal mammography, the rate of early-stage breast cancer diagnosis has approximately doubled. But that means we're catching it early, right? As opposed to late? So far, so good? The problem is that the number of late-stage breast cancers diagnosed isn't going down by much at all. The number crunchers conclude that most of these new cancers popping up on mammograms simply aren't the kind that would have progressed. They estimate that as many as half of these new cases are overdiagnosed. An overdiagnosis isn't harmless, Dr. Baum explains, because a really high percentage of people with an overdiagnosed cancer will get treated anyway. Effectively, you're taking women off the street who have a normal expectation of life and subjecting them to radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And these treatments have risks. Radiotherapy, for instance, can put you at an increased risk for heart disease and lung cancer. Baum explains these side effects are rare. The risks are worth taking if you're likely to die from breast cancer without treatment. But the deaths from treatment add up. And they don't spare people with overdiagnosed cancers. People who, had they never walked in for a mammogram, would never be getting treatment. And, according to the doctor... Here, I can come to absolute numbers. The chances of an individual woman benefiting from screening by avoiding a breast cancer death are, in my calculations, offset by the chances of a lethal toxicity from the treatment of a an overdiagnosed breast cancer. Dr. Baum says that the bias allowing this problem to exist is single-issue fanaticism. Breast cancer has affected so many women that society has spent the last few decades doing everything in its power to reduce the number of deaths. But advocates of screening, he says, are only looking at numbers regarding cause-specific mortality. Subjecting a woman to screening reduces her chances of dying from breast cancer but it increases her chances of dying from something else. In one paper, Baum estimates that mammography is responsible for one to three deaths for every life it saves. I can't speak for Mom, but I have to admit, I feel pretty convinced of his argument. Of course, there was still something I wasn't fully understanding. The only thing mammography does is provide us with information. And how can information hurt? If people die from unnecessary treatment, isn't that on the doctors? To help answer this question, Mom and I talked to Dr. Nancy Elliott, head of the Montclair Breast Center in New Jersey. If Dr. Baum represents one end of the spectrum on this particular issue, Dr. Elliott represents the other. She is a longtime crusader for early detection. The waiting room of the Montclair Breast Center is filled with pamphlets about risk factors and placards boasting their new ultra-sensitive 3D mammogram technology. When we bring up the new American Cancer Society guidelines and what we've learned about the anti-screening faction of the scientific community, we expect her to maybe get a little defensive. But she doesn't. She seems to agree. If people die from overtreatment, it's on the doctors. We're going to find things, and then we're going to overtreat them. You know, I think the solution to that is, well, let's stop overtreating. Okay, let's find DCIS, stage zero breast cancer, and stop doing bilateral mastectomy and just treat it as a high-risk factor. We, we are moving in that direction. And yet, it's from this interview that I come to understand, at least, I think, exactly how it is that screening can kill. I asked Dr. Elliott if patients ever go against her recommendations. 
if they ever get radiation therapy, for instance, even when it's her opinion that they don't need it. Yes, she says, sometimes. And she doesn't call the patient wrong-headed in these instances. She's sensitive. They had a different opinion, or they went to a radiation oncologist who had a different opinion. Dr. Elliot lays out a hypothetical. Two patients. Patient 1 has DCIS, also known as stage 0 breast cancer. Elliot estimates that a woman with DCIS has a 25% lifetime chance of developing the invasive disease, as opposed to the average woman, whose likelihood falls at about 12%. So the radiation oncologist would say, well, if we give you radiation therapy, we decrease that risk to 5%. You know, we really lower it. So that sounds fabulous. I'll have radiation therapy. Okay. So while patient 1 is off getting radiation, let's look at patient 2. She doesn't have DCIS or cancer, but her biopsy shows atypical breast cells, and her mother died from breast cancer. So her risk for invasive cancer is actually higher than that of patient 1. Well, that woman has at least a 25 to 30 percent risk of getting invasive breast cancer, yet there's no way that woman's going to get radiation therapy. The subtext here is everything. Patients hear that they have cancer, or DCIS, and no matter how brave they are, I know that my own mother is quite brave. It scares the living shit out of them. And fear is a bias. These patients want to do everything they can to avoid dying from their cancer, the disease that's sitting right in front of them. They're not worried about diseases they could get down the line as complications from the treatment, even if those ones stand a greater chance of killing them than the breast cancer. But if enough of them do seek treatment who don't necessarily need to, that's how mammography can kill more than it saves. So here we have a lot of science, right? We've dug into the new American Cancer Society's mammogram recommendations, and we've discovered how smart, well-intentioned people can line up on opposite sides. We've even identified a space that could potentially be easy to reconcile. Even Dr. Elliott concurs that some of these early cancers, the DCIS or stage zero cancers, what Baum calls pseudocancers, could be treated less aggressively. We might be able to screen, get more information, without killing people. But now I can't help myself from doing something arguably pretty stupid. Three and a half months into treatment, I asked them both for a very belated second opinion. Now consider this. In my first two weeks of knowing I had cancer, my very worst fear, well, of course dying, but mainly dying because I had made a mistake. And here I was, opening Pandora's box. You've heard a little bit about, you know that I'm a triple negative. It was detected on mammogram and ultrasound. Uh, they did find an MRI, not an in situ, another invasive carcinoma, but a very small one on the other side. I elected to have a double mastectomy. I'm doing what, what is very typical regimen in the United States of the ACT chemo. So, Am I... <laughs> One of the suckers? Yeah, my sucker. Well, let me tell you your big mistake was having an MRI of the other breast. Hmm. MRI scans as a routine are an abomination. It's too sensitive. It should only be used under strict circumstances, okay. none of which you fulfill. We now have an epidemic of bilateral mastectomies. Dr. Baum is vehement 
that getting an MRI in my other breast was unnecessary and led me into an unnecessary bilateral mastectomy. But I'm equally vehement. After surgery, the pathologist discovered that the spot that showed up on the MRI was a real invasive ductal carcinoma, breast cancer. Possibly, as Dr. Baum insists, it may never have threatened my life, but I'm just as glad to be done with it. It's rare to get in a shouting match with a doctor. Usually the patient isn't quite that opinionated. We know the incidence of contralateral breast cancer in the other breast is very low and currently runs at 0.5% a year. But I did have it in the other breast. And the other thing... No, you had an MRI. No, no, no. When they did the mastectomy, they did the, they did the pathology. I did have an invasive, invasive ductal carcinoma on the other side. And you what... had an, ov- an overdiagnosed cancer on the other side. Okay, but what would have happened is that in three or four years, that would have turned up on a mammogram. Or I would have felt it. it no. Would... No. You're making too many assumptions. But how upset, but, but, but listen to me as a patient. How upset I would have been three, four, five years out to say, oh my God, I just went through chemo, I went through being bald, I went through all this scare, and now I'm going through it over again. As for Elliot, the mistake she says I made was having 16 lymph nodes removed. That, she says, wouldn't have happened had I had a lumpectomy, and no need to worry because I would have had radiation treatment to deal with any spread. But just as with Baum and the MRI, I remain unconvinced. After all, hadn't I just learned a laundry list of morbidities that could result from radiation therapy? Ischemic heart disease, uh, carotid artery disease, lung cancer. And because I'd had a mastectomy, I was no longer in line for radiation. Moreover, since I'd had a mastectomy, I was no longer in line for more mammograms. It was a particularly vivid conversation with my nurse navigator early on that steered me away from lumpectomy. You'll be followed very, very closely, she said, and things may show up. You may get needle biopsies, and they could turn out negative, but you'll have scares. I didn't want scares. And this, scares, also plays a big part of the mammography debate. It wasn't just the possibility of exposing people to unnecessary treatment that had given Dr. Baum misgivings. It was also launching them into cancer world, people who didn't necessarily need to be there. My early misgivings, the experience on the front line, uh, particularly with these women with DCIS and who would fall about uh, having uh, an emotional crisis, and I felt guilty for that. It really upset me. I mean, you have to, you know, most of us are quite human and uh, it is not easy what we do. And breaking bad news is not easy. Ironically, Dr. Baum had his own personal involvement in breast cancer. His mother died of it and certainly would have benefited from early detection. But he points out she lived in a time when women could literally be disfigured by breast cancer and still try to keep it a secret. It was diagnosed way too late, not because there were no mammograms, but because she didn't see a doctor until well after symptoms had appeared. Still, the fact that universal mammogram screening might have saved his mother's life doesn't change his opinion on the facts and the numbers. And Noah, who studied science in college, is biased in much the same way. 
He believes that I may be one of the lucky few whose life may be saved by a mammogram, but he's unmoved by the personal. My case, my apparent luck, doesn't influence his view of the science. And my neighbor telling us at the Halloween party about her sister who died of cancer in five years? He's impervious. I just... They don't have much of an emotional effect on me as far as worrying about you. Um... I don't think I'm very susceptible to the anecdote. I don't feel, I mean, I don't feel relief when someone tells me that, that they know someone who lived a long time with it. But I also don't feel fear when somebody tells me about it. I mean, you just know there are a million cases of each. Maybe Noah should have been the one we drew the phrenology map on. One section of his head for facts, one for emotions, one for love of his mother, all neatly divided. He stands with Dr. Baum. I'd still recommend cautionary mammograms to my friends. But if it were me and a stage zero cancer, I probably wouldn't get it treated. I'd wait. To me, stories of women dying from cancer early, the very word recurrence can still ruin my day. But I did discover something. My state of mind is different than it was in the beginning. Overall, I'm less scared. Maybe it's because I'm already entrenched in cancer world. It's no longer a shock. I see myself every morning without hair. But I think it's more than that. I no longer have the fear of making that initial mistake. I'm on the yellow brick road. I've turned to the scarecrow. Trees are throwing apples at me. And as much as I'd like to wake up and have this all have been a dream, it isn't. Corny as it sounds, cancer is a journey. And while my end game is survival, not being brave, I can't keep going down this road with a blindfold on. Today, Mom and I would like to thank the doctors who took the time to talk to us. Her oncologist, Dr. Michael Scapatulo, Dr. Michael Baum in London, and Dr. Nancy Elliott in Montclair. Thanks to our in-house composer, Evan Schwartzman, for his most recent composition, Chemistry is Scary. Our in-house tape editor, Warren Levinson, and to graphic designer, Joe Amditas, for redesigning our logo. And thanks for listening to The Chemo Files. We'll be back. <laughs>